crack, coke, heroin, it did everything. There wasn't, so some, some addicts go down the road of one substance and stay with one substance. I described myself as a wreckhead. I remember this distinctly at the time, a wreckhead. I wasn't a junkie because a junkie gets hooked on heroin or gets hooked on rocks or gets hooked on coke or whatever they get hooked on. A, re a wreckhead doesn't require any specific substance. He just requires something that's gonna fuck with the central nervous system so much that 24 hours disappears. And we were seeing the don't care bears laughing at us and on the garage roof. We climbed up on the garage roof to get them. Phil, these things don't exist. They're cartoon characters. And we climbed up on the garage roof to get the don't care bears. And obviously they weren't there. So we started mooning and flashing our dicks at the neighbors. This isn't normal, Phil. That was a turning point for me because my brain kind of told me you can't anymore. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Hey, it's Karsten. You might have noticed that there are two things that are different about today's episode. One of them being the name of the guest is not shown in the show notes on the episode title. As you can already tell from the introduction, that's because of the very sensitive nature of the topics we'll be talking about. The second thing you might have noticed is that my guest is calling me Phil, and there's an interesting story to that. When I first moved to Bangkok, I was looking for a way to make new friends, which is a euphemism for meet women. And one of the ways I would wanted to go about it is to meet them on MySpace, which was very popular at the time. So I created a MySpace profile, but I didn't want to use my real name because MySpace profiles were public and I didn't want my, well, dating profile to show up when people Googled my name. But I also didn't want to explain that to my future dates that this is a fake name. So I opted for an in-between, which is my middle name, Philip, and shortened that to Phil, which makes for a good nickname because Thais also can pronounce it much easier than my German first name. And what then happened is that I did meet genuine friends, and I mean actual friends, who then introduced me to their friends, who introduced me to their friends, and suddenly there was this whole social circle of people who were calling me Phil. And out of this social circle is also where today's guest is from. So let's hear what he has to say. Today we are at a place who I'm not even sure has a name, um, we got the upstairs room of a bar, which we had to somehow bribe them for by, I don't know, agreeing to hire some of the staff to pay pool with us. So um, the girlfriend of my guest is right now playing pool with the bar staff, and uh, we're having a few drinks. Um, yeah, that's the setup we're using in order to have a place to record this podcast today. And with me today is Rich. And Rich has a very colorful life who I would like to talk with him about today. So Rich is actually from England. He's 42 years old. Were you in, what were you like in high school? Uh, definitely uh, an, an underachiever. My, my family home was really broken uh, at the time and there was a lot of things going on that made, it, that made school such a low priority for everybody, from my mum, my dad, my sister, everybody. It was just a really, really low priority. So at school I didn't uh, study hard. 
I was smart. I was always told I was smart, and if I tried hard, I could do really, really well. And uh, I kind of didn't believe the teachers or something like that. And so uh, I did my own thing, which included taking a year off school in the fourth year. Wait, you took a year off? Is that legal? Or? No, no, it's completely illegal. Um, I went for a... Co in the fourth year, I'd had enough of school. It's really complicated. I changed a number of schools. I got expelled from a few schools. And eventually, the first school that expelled me took me back. And uh, I went back, and I didn't fit in the second time round. And I just thought, you know what, fuck it, I've had enough. And so I took my sister with me as well, and we went to the cinema every day, snuck into the cinema, didn't pay, for months and months and months and months and months before the term ended for Christmas, after, the Christ after Christmas started, where the next term we carried on doing it. And then I came home one day, and my dad just said, how was school today? And I said, it was absolutely fine. And crack, he gave me the smash around the head, a real ear-ringing smash. And I said, oh, I've just been speaking to the school. And that's when, yeah, the game was up. So in your head, you were like, okay, I want to just have a normal life at home or just want to get along at home. Or Yeah, I wanted to be like how I perceived some of my friends who had pretty stable homes and mums and dads who were still appeared to be very much in love. And that, that's something I would have really liked to have. You went to their houses, like yeah. visiting, like, you know, kids yeah, visit yeah. each other. And do you remember that, you know, surprising you? I remember... Can I use a name, just a, single, a, a Christian name? Sure, sure. I remember going to Toby's house, and Toby's dad was a preacher. And by the time I was that, that age, maybe I was 10, I don't know. I don't know the, the age. But by the time I was that age, I'd worked out that God wasn't real. But what struck me was, this guy, his da Toby's dad, was the nicest man. I mean, the nicest, nicest guy. He had no bad bone in his body. If you tried to have a negative conversation with him, he'd switch it around and turn it into a positive conversation straight away. And I'd have loved to have seen that in my house. That would have been so good. Whereas I, I feel, without wallowing in any self-pity, just saying as it is, I feel my place was kind of like the opposite, where I was like, oh, let's have a nice positive conversation. And no, fuck it, let's have a negative one instead, was what came back. Mm -hmm. And another guy, Stephen, when I went round to his house, his mum worked out really quickly that I was not happy. And she said, why don't you live here? And I thought she was joking, but she said, no, live here, live here, Monday to Friday, go home at the weekend. Because I lived really far from school as well, like a two and a half hour journey, because I kept getting expelled, so we moved around a lot as well. And uh, I wasn't allowed to, unfortunately. So uh, yeah, that's, um, I, I would really have liked Steve's mum and dad and Toby's mum and dad to have sat down with my mum and dad and taught them how to be a mum and dad. Hmm. What, what got you expelled from school? Like, were you starting fights or...? Continuous bad behavior from starting fights, letting down tires on cars, uh, firecrackers, fireworks in inappropriate moments, stealing a, um, what are they call a, a seat turban, stealing a turban off a seat guy, stealing a hat, a, a cap, this is so bad, stealing a cap off a girl who had le uh, been leukemia, so with her, I guess it was chemotherapy, she was bald. And so I stole her hat and ran around like, yeah, I'm the fucking man. But looking back on it, obviously that's appalling. Do and if that had been my sister, I'd have killed the son of a bitch who did it. Do you have any theory what, what made you do that? Yeah, sure. I wanted um, some attention of some kind. And uh, bad attention was better than no attention. Do you rebel in that? When you, like, did, were you proud? It's, it's simple psychology. We, we do an action. If we receive 
from what we perceive to be our peers a positive response, we're more inclined to repeat the action or a variation of that action. If we do an action and their peers give us a negative response, we're less inclined to do that action. So did you get a positive response for those actions? No, I got a negative response. However, in my brain at that time, because my brain was negative, negative was what I was looking for, because at least that was attention. That was something, that was attention, being shown attention, whereas not getting attention elsewhere. At what y you need to, everybody listening to this podcast, when you go home, let's say, let's say you can go like a 72-hour period where you don't even have a conversation with your mum and dad in the same house. As a child, that's remarkably difficult to deal with. How did you deal with it? By stealing hats off kids with leukemia. <laughs> <laughs> and just being naughty, just trying to get attention in various ways. I don't have any... Of that period of time, I don't have any memory of doing anything particularly positive and people going, oh yeah, well done, well done, well done. Oh, I rode a BMX really well. That's what people gave me praise for, my BMX riding. Were you ever thinking about, okay, I need to do more BMX riding? No, no, I never thought that at all. I don't know why I didn't think that. It was just not in my mind to try and... But BMX wasn't a sport like it is today. It was just a, a pastime. Hmm. And you started drinking fairly early. Yeah. How early did you start? Well, my, my first drinks were when I was in single figures, but um, it's not, it's, that's not really habitual drinking. That's just stealing alcohol around the house and getting drunk or getting friends drunk. And it's not habit. It's not what I would call drinking. What I call drinking is when when you, when you have that glass, you put that glass to your mouth and you you feel it go in, and it's like a liquid orgasm going down your body. Mid-teens is when I could get that feeling. When you said single digits, you mean how old were you when you had your first, like... I've got no idea when I had my first ever drink, but I can guarantee you this, at seven years old I was stealing whiskey from my dad's cabinet, which he found out about. <laughs> What gives it, like, I mean, usually when you have a seven-year-old take a drink, they're like, ooh, this is, this, this tastes like, this doesn't taste very pleasant. Yeah, absolutely disgusting, definitely disgusting. What, so your next question might be, well, why would you do something that's disgusting? Because that's what I saw as a kid, and kids replicate what they see. 80% of people who smoke come from a smoker's house. That's because they watch people smoke. Do you have regrets about that? Or do you think, like, man, that, that was stupid? Or do you think it was unavoidable? Or At that, that stage, no, I don't regret it, because it was just a kid messing around and experimenting and not getting in a great amount of trouble because of it. I passed out pretty quickly. A seven-year-old can't hold much whiskey. Trust me, you fall asleep pretty fast. When I look back in hindsight, regrets at my teenage drinking, yeah, a lot of regrets at my teenage drinking, simply because I wasted time when I could have been uh, becoming more intelligent, learning things, pre prepping myself for the future. But foresight was a word that pretty much didn't exist in my brain at that point. Do you... And still might not. <laughs> do, you, do you consider... At, at what point would you say that might have been alcoholism? Or do you think that you never crossed that? Yeah, I definitely went into alcoholism uh, after 16 years old. That was definite alcoholism. That was alcoholism as in wake up, uh, can go through the day without drinking, but to go through the day with a drink made the day a much easier day. And do you think there would have been any way to avoid that? Yeah, absolutely. Somebody taking a whiskey bottle off me at seven years old and saying, that's not what we do. 
the orange juice is for you this is good this is healthy and promoting positivity towards me it's uh, it's really simple si- child psychology you applaud their good behavior they repeat their good behavior hmm. so what 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 happened next what happened i just got a blur of my teenage years just being a um what what i would call a, a dickhead by today's standards but at the time i thought it was cool but i wasn't cool uh i was from a really black area like lots of people uh, were black so I, for for a white kid to fit into a black area you've got to become black otherwise you don't sorry for a white kid to fit into a black area you've got you've got to become black so uh i became a wigger i became a wigger before vanilla ice even existed i could have set that trend myself with the right recording deal for the first job i'm really really proud of i'm really proud of that period of time in my life it was a manager of a skate park but rather than just being walking into a job and becoming the manager of a skate park we started with an empty shell of a factory we raised a quarter of a million pounds from charities from the government various um organizations charitable organizations a couple of rich people chipped in as well and dropped 20 grand 30 grand which was absolutely appreciated we got a company in there we did the ramps there was a massive crime problem in Warsaw at the time massive massive crime and it was linked those doing the crimes to uh, be, who were skateboarders when we opened up the, the the skate park it was packed and i mean packed seven days a week from the moment it opened to the moment it closed and crime went down that is success of the highest order and i did that i was 
and stay with one substance. I described myself as a wreckhead. I remember this distinctly at the time, a wreckhead. I wasn't a junkie because a junkie gets hooked on heroin or gets hooked on rocks or gets hooked on coke or whatever they get hooked on. A, re- a wreckhead doesn't require any specific substance. He just requires something that's going to fuck with the central nervous system so much that 24 hours disappears. And would you, would you, were you addicted to any of those substances or were you just addicted to any substance? I was addicted to intoxication. And how did you, did you, how long did that go on? It's not something that, where you go from zero to maximum at the flick of a switch. It accumulates over time, so you could say it was going for years. But I would say at the age of 18, I remember I was really, really skinny. And I remember I was buying one Big Mac meal a day. That was my food for the day. And everything else just went on gear. I mean, everything. I remember it so clearly now, we're talking about it. I can even remember the ramp, McDonald's ramp in Birmingham. Wow. Those were the days. Uh, Well, you ramped it up. And um, how long did that go on? Like, was there a point where you stopped doing that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, at 21 years old, my brain literally collapsed. It just couldn't do it anymore. So many different kinds of amphetamines in my body for so long. Years of lack of sleep, appalling diet for, for several years. The accumulation factor was amazing. And I kind of broke down in this weird... Okay, whatever, I'll, I'll tell the truth. Me and a friend broke down at the same time, and we might have instigated each other's breakdown. Maybe I broke down first and he followed, or he broke down first and I followed. I don't know. But I recall we were at his grandmother's house. He inherited a house from his grandmother when she passed away. And we were sitting there. We hadn't slept for days, and we were both hallucinating. And there used to be a cartoon. Do you remember the Care Bears? Mm-hmm. Right, well... A, a drugs company in England made a cartoon of it called the Don't Care Bears and they were like really, really evil. And we'd read these cartoon books and we were just laughing about them. We were in our, our mind at that time. I don't know who hallucinated it first. I don't know if we hallucinated it. We can't hallucinate it at the same time. That's a psychological impossibility. Someone hallucinated it first and the other one followed through. And we were seeing the Don't Care Bears laughing at us and on the garage roof. We climbed up on the garage roof to get them. Phil, these things don't exist. They're cartoon characters. And we climbed up on the garage roof to get the Don't Care Bears. And obviously they weren't there. So we started mooning and flashing our dicks at the neighbours. This isn't normal, Phil. That was a turning point for me because my brain kind of told me, you can't anymore. My brain said to me, I can't do this anymore. Please stop doing this. And I went through a a really weird period afterwards because like coming down is really fucking hard man and cleaning out is really really hard and then my entire social circle circle were wreckheads and junkies so i've got to find a completely new social circle i didn't have a completely new, new didn't have a new social circle so uh, on my own for want of a better phrase how like you were on your like you knew all your friends were i don't know toxic yeah and you, so you then just remove yourself from all friends you had no social circle yeah yeah absolutely because also i worked out at that time that these people weren't friends at all i mean th- these were people let's say there were fi- five people together and i was one of these five people but mickey just for example the name mickey mickey wasn't there then us five would talk shit about mickey until he walked through the door and then we changed the topic and let's say dibble wasn't there then dibble would be the one who really nasty dark shit that would be talking about them so I know that when I'm not there, they were also doing it about me. 
and this kind of resonated in my mind and I just thought they're, they're, not, they're not my friends I'm getting nothing out of this apart from getting high I'm getting, but I didn't want to get high anymore so I just got nothing out of it so I, I was on my own I guess that's the best way to describe it I, I made friends with people who before I would have just thought were nerdy and beat up but now because I needed friends I didn't want to think of them as nerdy or beat them up I wanted to be their friends and one of them in particular was he was the ultimate nerd but turned out to be a really good friend but he lost it later and ended up killing his boyfriend but that's another story so how did you get a new circle of friends or did you just not get one I met a guy called Alan Jarvis guy's the greatest fucking human being who ever lived how so ex-junkie ex-wreckhead knows the score inside and out man can't bullshit him second you bullshit him call you, don't fucking lie to me tell me the truth and I listened to him he was a peer that I could listen to he was more than a peer he was somebody I looked up to he was somebody I wanted to emulate I wanted to be and eventually I said like, I want to do what you do Alan you, you change people's lives who are in really low situations how can I do that and he trained me he trained me how to do it and eventually uh, I went to college I did a counselling course I passed that it was a two year course I passed it in 12 months because I went hell for leather every day I became a pretty good counsellor um, I even used to practice counselling skills just on regular people like on the bus just to become good at it and it's remarkably easy to just reduce somebody to, to I'm not going to use the word reduce that sounds like I'm making it happen to give people the right responses that re they choose to reduce themselves to tears and tell you their most intimate secrets within 10 minutes of meeting me on the bus yeah yeah on the bus I remember one on the bus exa exactly an old lady that's one I specifically remember just thinking wow this is crazy and then using those skills to pull birds and getting loads and loads of women because it was it's remarkably easy it's NLP basically so I mean, you know, if, if you're a bit of a devil's advocate here, you use the counseling skills to make old ladies cry and to get in the sack with the younger ones. <laughs> okay, that, that's... The old lady thing was one example, but there were lots and lots of examples of, uh, of somebody... I don't know, they'd just go, oh, what a shit day. And that would be my cue to, like, right, I'm going to find out what it, why it's a shit day, and I'm going to take it all the way back to his fucking childhood just to find out why he was upset about one that one specific thing. Because it's all about triggers. There's so much in, co in the psychology that's cognitive and leads back into an earlier point in your life. Hmm. Well, let's go to a later point in your life. Gladly, yeah. Eventually, I've got to add one more thing. As the result of this with Alan Jarvis and with his guidance and with his help, uh, we raised money and we started a, a group called The White Room. We, like a, a lunatic's room, you know, where you put a lunatic in the asylum. It's a white padded cell. We called it The White Room and it was a room where junkies and wreckheads could come together because the system had kind just, for various reasons, the system wasn't able to meet their needs. And um, by us working together, working together with ourselves and supporting ourselves, this is like AA without God, yeah? We didn't have a 12-step program. There was Z you can believe in God if you want. I don't give a fuck at the time. But you couldn't bring it into the room. We're not interested. We're just interested in supporting each other. You want to get off your head? Fine. We're not going to try and stop you doing anything either. Teaching them how to inject properly. Some of these fuckers, their arms are falling apart. Their veins are falling apart. Teach them how to inject properly, man. They could go through a year of using a similar spot. Nobody would know. That is one thing that gets their life in order, and that is also one thing that most governments will never endorse because it's seen as um, progressing their habit in some way. But we found out by doing this, it reduced their habit and they chose to stop of their own accord at the right time. Not a 100% success ratio, more than 50% failure, 
after this, I worked for the government, a government uh, called a place called Lantern House, a government-run program, and they had over a 90% failure. And the reason they had a 90% failure is because they wouldn't take those chances that we took when we did it voluntarily. We did all, white rooms voluntary as well, completely self-funded. People just bought a couple of quid, drop a couple of quid in the in the tub. We made progress the government couldn't make because they weren't prepared to take the chance. Hmm. I'm fucking proud of it. How many people went through that? No idea. Loads. It's in five, fifty. Not even one piece of paperwork was recorded about from it. Yeah. Nothing. So you just have these mental images. You have these. You remember, remember the right faces. Now. Yeah, 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 man. Remember them right now. Ali. Yeah. Straight away, first one came, comes into my head. Ali. I don't know why. I wasn't really a good friend with Ali, but Ali comes into my mind. So is that one of your most cherished memories? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely, because it. By doing that, it allowed me to do the government work, and by doing the government work, I felt I achieved something. That was the first time I felt I achieved something. The White Room, I did achieve something, something great and fantastic, but there was no piece of paper. There was nothing to say. There was no paper trail to say it even fucking existed. However, you can find me now as an ex-government employee drugs counselor, which is great. Hmm. So... And well, the youngest, the young, sorry, the youngest uh, drugs counselor in UK history wow. at the time. Might have been broken now. Mm. So, but you left the UK. You came to Thailand. That's right, I did, yeah. Um, I left the UK at 28 years old. I went to Greece. Following Greece, I went to China. I worked in China in a really, really small village. That was a really interesting experience. Chinese culture is off its head in so many different ways. It's really interesting. Uh, following that, um, my ex Muay Thai trainer got a world title shot at Lumpini Stadium he knew I was in China at the time and he said would you like to come and help me in the corner and I was like yeah that's my honour to help you in the corner so came to Bur Bangkok yeah, he fought it for the title won the title props all the way walking down as well with the big flag oh, I loved it man absolutely loved it then I, uh, I stayed at his place the weekend I phoned my boss in China and said listen uh, I'm not coming back I kind of really enjoyed Thailand that weekend and got a fairly decent English teaching job and carried on and at one point <laughs> for the first month because none of us had any money and like, my mate was boxing but boxing's got no money there was another boxer living with us and again no money and me and I had no money so there were four of us in a 28 square meter room <laughs> it was just fun who paid the rent? uh I think she was paying the rent, actually. I think his wife paid the rent. I couldn't be sure, but I know I didn't pay any rent. And from time to time, we'd pull a girl and have to bring a girl back. Picture this. Just picture it. It's a 28 square metre room. This guy and his wife are... Uh, his wife? He's not just some regular bird. It's his wife is asleep on the bed. Me in the corner with a bird. It's just weird, man. I don't know people who have got these stories. It's just weird. Did you, did you feel weird at the time? I rolled with it. I knew it wasn't normal, but I rolled with it. Okay, so you wait. Wait a second. Your former Muay Thai teacher came to Thailand, won the world championship, and didn't have any money. He earned the equivalent of five hundred English pounds for that match. Wow! So there really is fucking shit. <laughs> But the Thai guy probably walked away with twenty thousand dollars. Who knows? Huh. But that's the system. The system's different now. It's changed. It's become better. But uh, over a decade ago, it was definitely set up to make the Thai person financially better. Mm. So that's when you, that's how you landed in Thailand. That's it, yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> so you, you 
discovered Thailand and you had a colorful life back home. Did your life in Thailand become any less colorful? Uh, at first, my life in Thailand was pretty normal. Um, due to largely spending so much time with my former trainer, who I might not say his name because he's quite famous now. Okay, let's not then. And he is an amazing person. He's so driven. Nothing gets in his way. He's never drunk. He's never smoked. He's just so driven. So I'm going to do this and he will go out and find a way to do it and become really, really good at it. And that's a good person to have in your life. And I'm, I'm easy to lead. I've got leadership skills, but I'm also really easy to lead. So had I been with some bum, I think I could have fallen into old habits very quickly. So my first six months, plus I loved being a teacher. I mean, I really loved this and I still love it now. I'm good at it. I became good at it really, really quickly. And suddenly I was doing something I liked, something that was uh, improving people's lives. A similar feeling I got from doing the drugs work earlier, where it was improving people's lives. There's an incredible feeling watching someone go from A to B. B is higher on the graph and knowing you're part of that process that helps them improve. There's something really good in that. So I worked at a pretty good company for uh, two and a half years. Some of my old habits did start to come back. Because you know Bangkok, you know, everything, everything's here if you want it. There was a famous Songkran. Uh, yeah, there was a, there was a, there was a well, they're all great, great famous f uh, festivals, of course, Songkran in particular. This one in particular, I was coming back from, I'd gone out the night before and I stayed at a bird's house and I was coming back and I was cutting through Pat Pond. And it already started, man. The water was flying absolutely everywhere, all over the place. And it was just basically, I think all the go-go girls had just suddenly turned up to have a mid-morning mid water fight. So I joined in, and it went on for a couple of hours. The beer flowed, everything flowed. And I got pretty pally with three of them, who lashed out for a hotel. I'm amazed at this. This stays in my mind. I was like, okay, I've got no money. They were like, oh, do you want to go with us? And I said, listen, I've got no money. And it's the truth, I got no money. I had 50 baht or something like that, get a taxi home. So they paid for a hotel, and we just went into the hotel and spent the day screwing. They even gave me a Viagra to make sure it would last all day. Three girls. Three girls, man. It's a world-class moment. Not just three girls. Three working ladies who pay for the hotel for, to share me. It sounds... Reliving it now, it sounds weird. But yeah, it was great, man. Do you miss those years? Being a different man now, I would have to say, yeah, fuck, of course I miss those years. That kind of fun as a now and again thing. Three chicks in one bed with you. Man, most blokes dream about that their entire lives, let alone do it. So was it worth it? Hell yeah. It was also worth getting the AIDS test a few months later and being in the clear as well. That was, that was absolutely great. And there's a good story behind this as well because I went for the AIDS test and the doctor came and he put on like a show being like stern face and he put his hand on my shoulder. And I thought, fucking hell, he's going to tell me I've got the HIV. And then with a big smile, he just went, negative. And I just thought, you fucking wanker. And only in Thailand would that kind of sense of humor resonate into such a situation like that. But I see you're laughing here now because you're just like, shit, yeah, that could happen here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay, but um, that, was, that was in Patpong, right? Yes. And you had some other experiences there, right? I mean, this was not, this was not the, the first or the last time you went. Well, me and the guys, we worked 
on the same road as Pat Pong. So when we finished work every day, we'd go there and uh, fill our boots full of booze. And it was like a really, really golden era in Bangkok as well, about 2004, 2005, where... Um, like Pat Pong nightclubs weren't filled with hookers it was like like 50% hookers and 50% just regular girls who were just there for a party no one asked for a penny and that if, one night stands are fine with me when nobody wants me to pay them to fuck them it just doesn't feel right it doesn't resonate well in my brain mixing finance with um, with, with that action wait a second when no one wants to pay you to fuck them that's I mean, fine I mean when the, the, uh, night after night after night we were pulling these girls And me and my mate, we had this amazing tally going on where we were trying to work out how many um, we'd been with. And we were both at 53. And we were just like, oh, fuck it. We're not going to carry, uh, carry on counting anymore. Just carry on doing it. But it was just this incredible time where Pat Pong was a real party zone and the Ceylon Road as well. And the old Tapas Bar as well. That was going in Pat Pong. What's that? What's it called where Tapas is? Opposite um, Soy Convent. Ceylon Four. Ceylon Four. Thank you. Mm. And um, did you ever feel, you know, endangered? Because it sounds like a dangerous environment. Like, did anything dangerous ever happen the, there? The, yeah, yeah, danger did happen there. Um, I was s sometimes thought I was tougher than what I was. And uh, on one occasion in particular, you, get, you can get into um, arguments with Thai guys and because their culture is so peaceful, it's their, their goal and their way of winning the argument is to make the argument end peacefully. And that's a win for them. That they walk away going, yeah, man, that's a win. That's where the, that's where Buddha pats them on the back. That's really, really cool. And I love that aspect of Thai culture. Whereas Birmingham City, where, where I'm from, the way to win the argument is to be louder and more aggressive until the other guy fucks off. And that's how it goes. So when they're backing down and saying, no, 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 on this one particular occasion, I just carried on going and going and going and going and going. And I'll never forget it. I'll show you exactly how it happened. He just raised up his T-shirt and there was a handle of a gun. And my brain just went false gun. And then he just boom, pulled it out. And it's shiny as fuck, man. Shiny as fuck. This is a real fucking gun. Was he going to shoot me with it? I don't know. Did I shit my pants? Hell yeah, I shat my pants. And I backed down so quickly. So fucking quickly. Because I was scared, man. Real fear. I think it was real. The shininess of it really, really stood out. That's my Pat Pong gun story in a nutshell. But there were lots of other silly things that went on in Pat Pong, of course. You know, Star of Light, all those infamous. Your viewers don't want to hear those details. Hmm. Well, you did tell me you worked as a private detective. Yeah, this is, uh, this is good stuff, actually. It was only for a short period of time. I'd fallen... My habits had come back to me, and I was uh, doing a lot of... So anyway, I was, in, I, was, uh, I was on my ass basically, and I needed some money. And I'd read a book recently called uh, Bangkok Detective, Bangkok Private Detective by Stephen Leather. Do you know the book I mean? I think I've seen it in the bookshop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I read that, and it was this uh, story about a guy who became a private detective. And I went on, I think it was Craigslist, and I saw there's a couple of adverts of people in Patria doing this private detective stuff, and they want 10,000 baht a day. So I put one out at 5,000 baht a day, and people were interested in that. And all you've got to do is follow the girl. Just follow the girl around. Just say who she's with, uh, what she's doing. Try and get a photo if you can. But because you're a foreigner, it's, it doesn't always work that way. You stand out really, really easily. You can give a motorcycle taxi a couple of hundred baht, and they'll just follow them around for a few hours. 
So you outsourced the detectiving to uh, yeah, man. It, you know, I was the business moments. That was I was almost showing business skill there without realizing it by doing that. And I'd also like to add, every guy who contacted me was completely right. Every single chick was cheating. Oh, astronomical levels of cheating. Wow. Hmm. But it is patio. So that was an upswing in your luck. Repeat that, please. That was, that, that was when, well, your luck was in your favor. You got a you know, good private detective gig there. I needed it. I needed it. I was in. I was in debt. I owed. I owed enough people money that I couldn't go to anybody anymore. I couldn't go to anybody and say, "Oh, can you lend me a hundred bucks?" I'd just be like, "How many times have you asked me this, Rich? How many times haven't you paid me back?" And these were my my friends. Or and yeah, they, they they were my friends. I haven't kept in touch with them all to this day, and some of them have fallen out with by this by this point in time, like to, by by today. However, uh, yeah, I was the the old habits were back. Yeah, the old habits were back. Lying to get by. And at, some, at some point, you decided, okay, you got to leave. Got to, yeah, absolutely. I, I had to leave. Um, I, I was also, uh, I got paid some money to do some photographs for a gay thing. I didn't touch any gays or anything like that. Was, didn't have to touch anybody or nobody had to touch me. I just have to stand in provocative provi- positions and get paid for photographs. Naked? Yeah. Yeah, stuff like bending over, splitting your ass open, that kind of thing. How do you feel about that? Splitting my ass open. If you ask me, I might do it. <laughs> um, you know, at the time, I didn't feel good about it. I just needed money. I was broke. I don't know. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you know what it's like to be broke? No. Okay. Next question. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's uh, you know, as you say, it's you grew up in a certain way, and you know that sets a context. So I did notice that. Um, yeah, I was never broke. Uh, money was never for me something where I'm like where I was really really down out I mean there were situations where I felt stressed about money but relatively speaking there was always you know mm. still a barrier left it was never that there was I never was in the situation where I'd like okay there's 50 baht in my wallet and I have to make that last a week so that never happened to me so uh, that's why also I find this so when one is in that situation when 50 baht's got to last a week And you can make a grand by having your asshole photographed. A thousand sounds okay. But, but, a thousand pounds to get my asshole photographed. Man, I'd still be doing it today if it was a thousand pounds. Okay. So, but okay. So at some point, you said, okay, you gotta basically cut your losses. I got to get out. Yeah, definitely. I'd run out of options. Uh, I'd borrowed to the point of no return. I owed, I don't know, three or four months' rent on my apartment. I spoke to the manager of the apartment block, and he said, look, I've got a smaller apartment. Go and move there. It's half price. We'll sort it out. Don't worry about it. So I went there. The habits continued. Wrong people, bad people, until I hit a point where I've got to get out. And so I contacted a guy. I contacted my friend Rob. I said, okay, what can I do? And he said, come and work for me in Sri Lanka. I thought, Sri Lanka, fucking A, I'll go for it flight sorted out all I've got to do is find a way to get past the security guards with all my luggage get to the airport with fucking nothing get on a plane meet Rob at the airport in a, a Colombo and everything will be okay but anyway I was on the balcony and I was looking at the security guards I was thinking how am I going to do this I'm going to walk out with two two big suitcases I know what they're going to say bye night that's what they always say bye say Isan guys And they were on the watch out for you. Yeah, they, everybody knew I hadn't paid. Everybody knew I was on my ass. 
So if I walked out there with two suitcases, they're going to go, you know, where the hell are you going? And what am I going to, what, what am I going to turn around and go, oh, I'm going to Patia for a weekend with everything I fucking own. It just, these aren't the smartest guys in the world, but even they would work out that I'm full of shit. So I'm thinking, right, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? So I go back into my bedroom. I get my bed sheets. This is like inspired from movies, like World War II, Escape from a, a Castle or something like that, movies. And so I got my bed sheets and I cut them up into strips about, I don't know, how wide were they? Let's say four inches wide. My bed clothes, cut them into strips, tied them together and made ropes, for want of a better phrase, ropes, yeah. And I tied my luggage around the rope and I lowered it down from my balcony, three, but three floors up, and I lowered it down to the ground. Then I got the next one and I lowered that down to the ground. And then I got the next one, blankets tied together. And I can feel it going tighter and tighter because I'm too heavy. But it got me down to the bottom anyway. Then I got the fence in front of me. So I threw my luggage over the fence, jumped into a taxi. The taxi driver's like, where do you want to go? Airport. And went, okay then. And we spoke to each other all the way in the airport. And I told them a complete pack of lies. I said, oh, my girlfriend's really, really horrible. She's robbed me and everything. And I've just got to get out of here. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got no money. Didn't charge me for the, uh, for the journey. Taxi driver showing a bit of JD. How often have you seen that in Bangkok? So I uh, got to the airport, got on the flight, eventually landed in Colombo. And then I got off the, uh, off the plane, got my luggage, and I walked to the area. And Rob was there with uh, his boss, who I can't remember her name off the top of my head. He married her eventually, if memory serves me correctly. And he just said, wow, you're skinny. Because um, the last time Rob saw me, I was in uh, Saudi Arabia and... Uh, in Saudi Arabia, my fitness went through the roof. I hit the highest level of fitness I've ever experienced in my life. Because nothing to do there. So you just got to train and get fit. And I was, I was at a really, really good level. I mean, I'm fit now, but Saudi fit was fucking fit. Yeah, and he just said, wow, you're skinny. And I just thought, yeah, no shit, asshole. <laughs> so now, you, now you're back in Thailand. And yeah. you kind of turned your life around a bit. You enrolled in university? Yeah, that's right. I uh, finally got my arse in gear, enrolled in university. I still like teaching, so it's a BA in TESOL, so I can go to countries like Japan, South Korea, maybe go back to the Middle East. Countries that are now closed to me because of the visa situation. I don't have a BA. However, I would challenge any, any person who's just entered the TEFL industry who's got their BA in um, flower arranging or their BA in history or their BA in whatever that's not no, teaching related you could make two classrooms absolutely identical put drone students in there that behave exactly the same way and see which teacher pr produces the goods and I guarantee it's me after 13 years of doing it five days a week six days a week almost no holidays man I've become good at it and it's water off a duck's back are you doing some kind of research at this point my, I'm not doing research exactly right now. The last research I did was uh, about uh, expats and their reasons for leaving wealthier countries to come and live on a fraction of their salary in Bangkok, mm. which was very, very interesting. Some of the results were obvious and some of the stuff that was revealed was really interesting. So what are your plans for the future? I've just landed a really... Well, I'm, also, I'm involved in a company that I'm promoting at the moment, uh, a training company, and through that company... I've just landed a contract worth over a million baht, which is really good for me. For me, that's a great thing. 
because I wouldn't have imagined doing that in the past. I've got to go to Hong Kong and China to set it up for a few months and then I'll be able to come back to Bangkok in July or August and continue the work from here. And I feel like I've, I've made something good of myself in that respect because people who I've looked up to before are the kind of people who do put contracts together, but do make things happen, are prepared to go out there and do these things. They go, they set up projects, the project runs, they go back to where, they're going, where, where they came from and they run the project remotely. And I'm doing that now. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com and the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>